This podcast is. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. It's a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. If country borders and grids can fascinate you and state names intrigue you, if atlases, globes, city plans, subway maps, and of course, world maps are your thing, if you can name the capital city of Namibia, and if you get giddy about flags, you are in the right place. This is Map Corner, a podcast about the love of maps brought to you by Royfield Brown and Claire Asprey. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to Map Corner. I'm Royfield Brown, who is 43.4 degrees north and 79.7 degrees west, which puts me in Oakville in Ontario. And with me, we have the most capable of women, Claire Asprey. Where are you today, Claire? As usual, I'm at 52.1 degrees north and 0.5 degrees east in Bedfordshire, UK. Don't you think you should really like mix it up a little? It's, it's just it's getting a little bit tired now that you never move about, Claire. I'm the sort of, you know, the, the stable one in this partnership. You're the, you're the uh, international traveller, and I'm the one who just stay, uh, stays at home and uh, is, the, is the base of things. Are you the stable genius then? I didn't say genius, but uh, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say no. Great. There you go, folks. He's not saying no. Map Corner is a podcast dedicated to the love of maps and to all things cartophilic. So if Peter's is your prediction, folks, you're in the right place. And this month we'll be talking to Deirdre Mask, who's got fascinating insights into something which we mainly take for granted, which is a home address. Don't forget, folks, um, we need your help on this podcast. Quite simply, write a review on Apple iTunes, because then rise up those podcast charts, we get more listens to the podcast. Now, today we have an audio postcard from me. I recently went to Berlin my second trip there and i'm gonna give you that in spades it's all about traffic lights in berlin and again we're live on zoom today for our recording so um people who are joining us in the zoom call welcome to you and uh, you get to join in and ask questions uh, and if you want to join one of our future uh, zoom calls for the podcast recording just get yourself into our facebook group and we'll post the links for the next show and we record every first Saturday of the month at 6 p.m. UK time, which is 1 p.m. Eastern or 10 a.m. Pacific. This month we're joined by Digimask, who's uh, written a book called The Address Book, which is a very simple way of talking about something that we all don't really notice, really, which is having an address. It's just a really fascinating read and we, you know, we take it for granted. And in reading the book, it really made me think about how it's just another form of invisible privilege that I have. That I do take that for granted. So, Deirdre, welcome and uh, tell Great, me thank what you. To, what attracted you to write a book about something which is so ordinary that it's invisible for me? Yeah. Well, I'm actually a really unlikely person to have written a book about street addresses. I, you know, I'm not a geography buff. I wish I was a map buff, but I'm not even that. But um, you know, I studied classics and then I did law. But I came across this really um, interesting statistic just as you sort of mess around the internet trying to find out answers to things, which is there's this organization which is called the Universal Postal Union, just second oldest UN organization. And I always say the name Universal Postal Union. It was almost like they picked it to make it sound incredibly boring, but it's absolutely fascinating what they do, which is they regulate the world's mail. And on their website, I found all this information about this program that they had, um, which is basically designed to give every person in the world an address. And it just sort of sounded like a quirky fact, but then I realized that, you know, learn from it that billions of people don't have addresses or at least not addresses as we picture them or as we as as we have you know in places like the uk where i'm in or in the us um but then you know the more you read about it, the more you realize how important having an address is you know without an address you struggle to get credit you'll struggle to bank you'll struggle to vote 
Um, you, you lack privacy in your mail, which is actually they dump piles of mail in the community center. You lack inclusion and counting as, as a lot of people who don't have addresses live in slums. Um, so I was just totally fascinated, but exactly as you said, Claire, it's this sort of invisible privilege. And I just sort of dove into it and ended up with this book, which is, which is about way more than just not having an address, but, but one aspect and, and a couple of chapters of it are on this. You did a lot of traveling and a lot of research. Yeah. How long did it take to work on the book? Well, I, I always give different answers to this. And this is because, you know, I started thinking about it about, gosh, probably about six years ago. But, you know, as you do, you're writing a teaching and then I, I was writing articles, you know, writing, uh, you know, article here or thinking about it, interviewing people. Um, but I actually got the book contract to write it about six weeks after my second child was born. And this is why it also complicates it because was I working on it the first year of her life or was I not? It's all a haze, probably about four years. Um, but yeah, I did take a lot of travel. You know, I went to, to India to explore um, a project to give addresses to slums in Kolkata. You know, I went to Vienna, you know, I, I did, there's a lot of uh, work in the U.S., which is where I'm from. There's, but it's an international story. So there's chapters on Japan and Korea. There's chapters on Berlin. There's chapters on Haiti. There's, um, there's quite a bit about the UK where I live as well and a great deal about the US and particularly New York um, and Philadelphia. So yeah, so it really is quite an international book and it sort of travels across time as well. We go backwards and forwards in time quite a bit. I, I was quite interested by what you were saying about the idea of even numbering houses was kind of invented in the period that that sort of came around where it was seen as quite a, um, it's an overreach of the state. And I hadn't really thought about it like that. So I was no. just, what do you think the pros and cons are of having an address at all? Does it does it leave us open to be snooped upon? Yeah, you know, it's a great question because it's not something I thought about before, but there are scholars, like there's a scholar called Anton Tantner who's in Vienna, who's written a lovely book called House Numbers, which I recommend. But yeah, which explores this idea about house numbers are really an invention of the Enlightenment. And it makes sense because the Enlightenment was about making everything rational and counting and statistics. And so this was part of it. But, you know, it was also a part of the changing nature of the state. So where the state actually suddenly started wanting to know who was living in there, you know, and what people were doing before they weren't that concerned as long as you sort of paid your taxes. And so one of the stories I tell is actually a story about Maria Theresa, who, you know, an empress of the Habsburg Empire. And she basically started in, among her empire numbering people so that she could see them. Um, basically, she wanted to draft them, you know, the series of wars. Um, and she needed she needed the strong and healthy men, but it's actually really hard to find people. And so she, so she sent her military out to number houses. And people felt really aggravated by this. We kind of have the sense already that numbers are dehumanizing. So that's definitely part of it. But you sort of had a shield of your home. You have a shield of your community that other people can't see. It was like stripping the privacy off when you number a house and, and and you connect it to your identity. And this makes actually makes a lot of sense. And um, one of the, the first article I ever wrote about this and also appears in the book was about, I, I wrote about uh, rural communities in West Virginia, a state not that far from where I grew up that didn't have addresses. And so they were giving people um, addresses largely for 911 purposes, literally an ambulance can't find you. Um, it was sort of a public health problem, but it was also this, you know, there were people there who didn't want them and people would say, I would say, oh, they're just ignorant. You know, they're just, you know, in America, you might use the word I'm using my quote fingers, Hicks, you know, they don't know what they're doing. But I knew it wasn't that because the more I read about it, the more I realized that they actually were quite sensible that when you have a number, you know, there are lots of benefits. As I said before, I see addresses as a good thing, but there are downsides to it. You can now be found, you can be taxed, you can be imprisoned, you know, even little things. If you get junk mail sent, you're, you lose some privacy when you have these these numbers. Um, so there are these pros and cons. These help us organize our lives. They help us get our posts, just even simple things like that, all the packages. There's a chapter on public health measures, how we disease track. But it's not a silly concern to think that having an address makes you findable in ways that you know maybe you don't want to be found. Absolutely. And the, and the public health stuff, particularly at the moment, obviously, is yeah. very pertinent. And um, yes. one of the things that was then there was something about how we, we don't know much about venomous snakes in Brazil because where there are snakes, there are no maps. And where there mm -hmm. are maps, there are no snakes. And I think, yes. well, you know, that's matching up the maps that yeah. we have to the places that need yeah. That mapping for public health purposes is still a massive challenge, isn't it? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's not easy to address places and it's not easy. And you guys know this better than I would. It's not easy to map and to find places. You know, a lot of people would say, oh, you just need a Sharpie marker and, you know, write down a number of houses. But it's obviously way more complicated than that. Modern addressing is actually highly technical and getting the kind of address infrastructure we need for it to be effective is, is incredibly hard. So, yeah, so from the public health perspective, I mean, you see this in the UK when you have these mini lockdowns and you see, you literally see postcodes in legislation. You know, this is how we 
organize things and we track things and, and in places that have good test and trace programs this is great but even even in times the, the chapter i read about is about haiti and the cholera outbreak and how hard it was to treat patients and find out where the cholera was coming from because of the lack of maps and lack of street addresses to a, a, somebody who worked for doctors without borders the point about when he was working with um, ebola in sierra leone you know he'd be sending people out on motorcycles with nothing with no maps or anything but it, but in some of the places that most need these kind of techniques, these sort of mapping techniques and addresses are often the ones who don't have them. Yeah, no, I'm quite keen to get someone from Missing Maps onto the podcast at some yeah. point. Yeah. They do some amazing stuff. Absolutely. Deirdre, yeah. obviously, yeah. Um, historically, we've named our streets after local landmarks yeah. uh, yes. or the destination of a street. What does mm -hmm. the naming of our roads and our streets after heroes tell us about us as a society and as a people? Oh, I mean, that's a great question. I think it's one of the animating questions of the book. I mean, yeah, and you see this a lot in, in England. Oh, you see it all over. But a lot of street names, so historically, were just named for something that happened to be there. So it's, I love church streets and market streets and shop streets. You know, it just makes sense. Or, you know, it's named after a river or some local feature or, or often a family who lived there. There was a time when this started to change. We started to name things after people and commemorate. Um, in the book, I sort of place it around the French Revolution, but, you know, but this idea that of, of kind of branding, of, of using street names as a brand to commemorate things, it's a sort of idea that history is moving really quickly. And in order to like, you know, to, to hold on to it, and we feel this, you know, I feel this more than ever in 2020, in fact, that things are moving so fast that we want to pin things down. And often we pin things down on things like street names. So in the French Revolution, the revolutionaries were very big on trying to change the street names, getting rid of the royal names. You know, and getting names like, you know, justice and replacing, you know, streets after princesses and that kind of idea. Um, but from there, you know, we, we do that now, obviously. We commemorate. We use street names to commemorate. Be, I think it'd be fairly uncommon if you just had a street name now that was just simply named after something that was there. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but I think often people want to either brand it in a way that seems attractive or commemorate someone, especially sort of important streets. Um, but then it does start to say something about who we are. And this is, of course, the debates that we're having now about you know, Black Lives Matter in the U.S. or about slavery names in the U.K. or in, in all over the world. I mean, from all over about people thinking about colonial names in, in some countries or thinking about, yeah, civil war names or racist names. I mean, it's a continual conversation. There are many places um, in the U.S. that have a Martin Luther King Boulevard or yeah. street. Um, what types of names does that go and replace? Mm. And mm. then also, what then does that tell us about that locality that they've decided yeah. to name the name thus? Yeah, this was one of the most interesting chapters that I worked on. With, it sort of tapped into a rich vein of academic research, which has been looking at Martin Luther King Jr. streets as a geographer named Derek Alderman in particular. I encourage people to look to his work. But yeah, because, black, because Martin Luther King Jr. streets were often put on... Um, black streets. It was the African-American community that was hoping to commemorate them. And as we know, cities, you know, even today are often segregated by race. Um, and sometimes they were they were purposely put on streets that were struggling a bit, you know, to inspire the residents, for example. Um, so, the, so the idea in the American mind along was that Martin Luther King Jr. streets were not not just black streets that they were that they were bad streets they became sort of symbols of sort of a certain kind of poverty and crime urban poverty and crime there's a chris rock joke famously where he says something like you know if you find yourself on martin luther king jr street run right and it's you know it's funny because you have this idea of them and so i was sort of interested in it's in the book and exploring this idea of why do we connect martin luther king jr streets with you know with this idea and, and actually is it even true and in some sense um there's been one study that was done that said actually martin luther king jr streets aren't that different economically from you know main streets or jfk streets in america and they did extensive analysis and also a lot of martin luther king jr streets they aren't actually just in black neighborhoods they aren't cabined to black neighborhoods a lot of them are on integrated streets or even as you'd say in uk posh streets um but i sort of come to the conclusion that because people now connect martin luther king and junior streets with black streets they'll always think they're bad streets just because of the because people just think that things that are black tend to be bad um so i'm trying to engage with with the the image of mlk streets and, and how we think about race in america in terms of how streets come to be named yeah. you talked a bit about how Although in America you've got a tradition of name, numbering streets rather than naming, yeah. clearly there's, there's, a, there's a crossover because people seem to be in a, in a big hurry to name uh, numbered streets as well. Mm. 
do you have any favorite street naming or numbering conventions oh, or gosh. like you know different places have a, a different approach to it oh that's a great question no i don't get to have any favorite because i think i'm but the concept of what you said about changing the numbered streets for name streets is actually really interesting i think that's happening more and more and that i write a lot about this in my book about americans i don't think it's just north americans either i think south americans also often have numbered streets whereas europeans totally reject them and are actually banned by law in some places like estonia they don't like them you know they, they like these historical names in america but i think that the changing of the numbered streets is very interesting because in america they were in part for convenience but also in part because there was this neutrality and rationality and this all makes sense and there was this you know again a big quotes new country that we're parceling out so i find it interesting that americans are becoming a bit more european in their sensibilities that they want to pin down historical names and commemorative names replacing these numbered streets no, nobody really wants to number streets anymore in Letchworth Garden City, which was the very first garden city in the world, yeah. they have got some numbered streets. Yeah, yeah. And Milton um, Keynes as well. Like, yeah. Like new thing. It was like, it was a very, yeah, Milton Keynes was very much an American inspiration. Wasn't yeah. It? But it is quite rare, definitely. Yeah. And, and then when it was done, um, you know, there are patches of them or other cities in Germany. I hear about a few of them. I mean, it's, it's very unusual, but it happens. But it was done purposely for that, for the same reason that America was... I mean, not the same reasons, but for similar reasons in terms of being rational and orderly and make sense. This was the whole purpose of these places was to be rational and orderly. We always, at least when I was a child, I thought that, yeah. you know, street names just came out of the ether. And then it's yeah. only when you become an adult, you realize that there is exactly. like a naming committee at the local council, exactly. you know, that, exactly. that, at least with new, with new streets and new roads that go and name them. Um, very obviously, um, you have a regime change, you know, you have yeah. the Nazis come to power, yeah. right? Yeah. And they want to get rid of, you mentioned the French Revolution, so it's a similar thing. They want to get yeah, rid yeah. of yeah. old vestiges or at least commemorate new heroes. Yeah. Um, specifically, let, let's keep with Germany. Are yeah. there many street names which still commemorate Nazis that people wouldn't even realize that, you know, yeah. were, well, you know, it, Hitler's henchmen? Yes. Well, I mean, it comes up every so often in the German news. Um, I haven't looked at it recently, but as I was writing the book, there would be one that would be unearthed. That was an old Nazi name and then people would scramble to change it. There's apparently mm -hmm. a street in Vukovar in Croatia that's been changed six times in the last century or so. Um, you know, with, one with every regime change. And we see this, you see this a lot. Uh, but Germany is particularly interesting because street names are actually really great propaganda. You have to say them and you have to use them. You can't just walk by it like you can a monument. And monuments are kind of invisible anyway because we don't often notice them. But street names, you have to use them. You have to see them. So they sort of worm your way into your mind. And Hitler was the master of propaganda. He and Goebbels, I mean, they really used this. There's a quote at the start of my book, which is from Willy Brandt, where he says that when the, the Nazis started to come into a power, then began the renaming of the streets because they started reading the streets often about after Hitler, almost every sort of city or town would have a Hitler street, but also taking Jewish names off. So not just putting uh, uh, Nazi names on, but they stripped famous Jewish names um, from the streets. And so the challenge after the war ends is that everybody agrees they need to be changed. But then what do you change to? Because obviously, you know, Berlin is what's the focus has had the most, you know, most tumultuous history of pretty much any city, you know, so it's, it's gone from all these different regime changes. Now we're after the Nazis, but then we have the East, which is pulling for Eastern, you know, for more communist names. Um, and then you have the West who doesn't want these communist names. Um, and in fact, just kind of wants to go back to normal. So the East kind of wanted to be more radical and the West didn't. And then when they rejoin later, then what the problems, oh, which one are we going to adopt? Who are we? And so it becomes sort of a way of people reckoning. In West Germany, they want to get rid of a lot of communist names, even communists who are anti, I mean, these are anti-Nazi martyrs, but they said, and, and maybe not unreasonably, that these are communists who don't believe in democracy and we're a democracy. So they would be trying to overturn the very government that we're supporting now. So do we take them off? And so it sort of became a sort of a battle of identity in Berlin over these names. So, you know, and it continues there. There's still battles all the time over street names in, in Germany. But so again, it sort of becomes a metaphor for how things change and the way we view our own sort of identities in lots of different ways. I'm guessing, uh, Deirdre, that, you know, as I said earlier on, there are these kind of let's name the street committee and every council mm -hmm. throughout the world. And Claire knows all yeah. about the, how exciting it is to, to work for a council. I'm guessing, yeah. right, considering you've written this book, yeah. you could be some street naming consultant. They could just like, you could mm, be jetted oh in God. all around the world to, to oh hot spots gosh. where streets need to be renamed and like, wow, like, surely that is um, one great outcome of you writing this 
fantastic. Oh, no, not at all. That was like my complete nightmare. I mean, I think one of the things I bring up in this book is that um, it comes up towards the end is that it goes back to Claire's point about numbering names and then changing numbers to names. There's all these debates about it. And I watched so many of them, fraction of them made it into the book often comes out where people will have a contentious name. They'll say, oh, let's just number it. And nobody wants that. As I said, everybody wants to put their view of history on there. But so they have these arguments. But I I like the arguments. I'm actually glad there's the arguments. I'm glad there's debate about it because as I talk about in the book, you know, arguments divide communities, but they also make communities. And this often comes up. I remember talking to somebody, um, to Ivan Gaten, who who works with this Missing Maps project about names. And I was saying, oh, there are projects that try to just come in from above and name or, or number streets. And he says, ah, that's not really effective because people won't use it because they have no connection to it. You know, they have no identity with it. It's, it's much better to ask people on the ground, like, what do you call this? Or, you know, in some places it's, you know, which chief controls this area? And then let's name it after that. So I, I think it has to be a a highly localized answer, but I'd love to be jet, you know, jetted across the world at some point if uh, if I'm ever allowed to do so again. <laughs> I think what you've learned is that you can't keep all the people happy all the time when it comes exactly. to games. Exactly, <laughs> and, it's, and is that such that. a bad thing? I think it's I think it's kind of good that we have this constant tussling uh, over street names and, and monuments and ideas. You know, I remember reading an article and mm. um, about Bobby Sand Street in, yes. in Tehran. Yes. And I just an utterly genius move by the Iranian revolutionary regime. So for people that don't know, Bobby Sands was an IRA um, political uh, operative who was jailed by the British in the end of the 1970s. And it's just one of those names. It just reminds me of my childhood, Bobby Sands, Mm. because he was put in in prison uh, by, by the British in Northern Ireland. And he went on a hunger campaign, didn't he? And starved himself to death as a protest. Iran has a revolution, 1979, and the road where the British embassy is, they rename it Bobby Sand Street. Mm-hmm. Just utterly a, a brilliant, a brilliant PR move. To, yes, absolutely. Especially in a place like Iran, which just hated the British. Exactly. Um, but but it's interesting, and they talk about this. But the, interesting. There's no Bobby Sand Streets in Ireland, north or south. Mm-hmm. So you know, because it's because it's easy from a far away to say, like you know. To, to think of Bobby Sands and it's uh, from a distance, you, easy to, to see him as, you know, as this martyr or as a criminal or as a terrorist or, you know, as a hero, it depends. But when you're up close in it, in Ireland, it, it's much more difficult. His legacy is much more mixed. People have very complicated feelings about it. So this idea of commemorating a street after Bobby Sands is in Ireland is almost impossible because it gets to those finer grained arguments. Whereas from afar, you know, we just have this, this myth. France has quite a few Bobby Sand streets as well. There's all, they're all over the world, but they're not in Ireland itself. And I always find that fascinating. So one of the things I thought was really interesting when I was reading through your book was that the piece that you wrote about Japan and Korea. Yeah. Um, and how when, when we think from a mapping perspective and we're mentally mapping, people who grow up with character-based languages thinking a block sense mm-hmm. rather than a linear sense mm. um, well that's the theory I, at least really yeah about before and i just thought you, know, you want to say something about what what does it mean to think in a block way yeah well this is just simply a theory but it's a theory by this sort of brilliant urban planner his name's barry shelton every, every time you write about street addresses people say talk about you know Pan because they don't have typical street addresses, named streets and house numbers. They do have numbers, but they're not ordered in, in the ways that we think of. I think sometimes they're ordered even by when the house was built, but it's not lo- It's not this logical, linear way we think about it. And I was talking to this urban planner who works a lot in Japan, where his theory is that, um, so the way Japanese do it is they number blocks rather than naming streets. And he sees it a bit like the, the character-based languages you write in blocks. So, for example, when um, I learned to read uh, and write, and when he learned to read and write, when my children are now learning to read and write, they write on lined paper. And, of course, in Japan, when you have a character-based language, you write on paper that actually has little squares in it that we see in lines, like streets. And, you know, and perhaps they're seeing in squares, like blocks. Um, so they're reading their city in blocks, not, not in lines, is the theory it goes. And I always thought it was a lovely idea about how you know, the way we talk and our language and our minds might be shifted. And, and because this is a mapping program, he gives an anecdote, which I tell in the book, which I think is kind of amazing. He said that he, would, he once asked somebody um, in Japan to draw him a map somewhere, and they drew all of the landmarks first, and then they connected the landmarks with streets last. And he said he couldn't imagine anybody, you know, an English speaker doing it that way. The theory that he proposed, which I think is a pretty good one, is that it's connected to, to our language and the way, we, the way we read and write. So I think that just emphasizes how not just the addresses that we take for granted, but our way of 
yeah. conceptualizing space that we sometimes take for granted exactly cultural in a way we hadn't realized exactly what we see and how we conceptualize it i mean it's all it's complicated but it's wrapped up in yeah our, the way we see the way we write our brains how our brains work how, what the physical environment looks like well you know what deirdre mask i want to find out exactly how your brain works because it's time <laughs> for the map corner quiz yes excellent all right so <laughs> I know uh, you're going to ace this, right? And I do this every time, right? But everybody we've had on the show has always done very well at the quiz. Oh, my God. Anton Thomas. I completely embarrass myself. Well, mm, I'm setting you up here. Anton Thomas, uh, last month, got all questions right apart from one. Oh, that yeah, no, he's really going to beat me. So, gonna, it's going to be revealed. I actually know nothing at all about street addresses. You might <laughs> be surprised, Deidre, because some of it's based on your book. Okay, there we go. There we go. And uh, by the way, Nick Rowworth is a little bit of a map corner quiz shark. He always does very well. So just just mm. watch out for him. Watch out for him. Question number one: According yes. to Frank Knight, to a Frank Knight report in 2020, mm. what was the world's most expensive street? Was mm. it? Don't say now, Ms. Mask. Um, was it 52nd, 57th Street in New York, Nicholson Road in Hong Kong, or the Pacific Coast Highway in LA? We'll do the questions uh, at the end of the answers, even at the end of the show. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. Question number two. In 1844, how many deliveries a day did the Royal Mail offer in London? Was it A, three, B, five, or C, seven? in 1844 how many deliveries a day did the royal mail offer in london a3 b5 or c7 now if you've been paying attention in your interview you'll you'll know this answer which 18th century european ruler sent out an army to number houses was it a philip v of spain b mary Teresa of bohemia or c george ii of great britain Again, in which 18th century European ruler sent out an army to number houses? A. Philip V of Spain, B. Mary Teresa of Bohemia, or C. George II of Great Britain? Question number four. Which building has the postal address of P.O. Box 995, Kentucky, USA? A. The Lexington Cemetery, B. Fort Knox, C. Churchill Downs Racetrack, the home of the Kentucky Derby. It's not a derby, it's a derby, right? <laughs> Again, which building has the postal address of P.O. Box 995, Kentucky, USA? A. Lexington Cemetery. B. Fort Knox. C. Churchill Downs Racetrack, the home of the Kentucky Derby. Question number five. Which is the most common street name in the USA? A. Main Street B. First Street C. Second Street Which is the most common street name in the US of A? A. Main Street B. First Street C. Second Street Which fictional character lives at 508 St. Cloud Road? Is it A. Bruce Wayne B. The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air or C. Jessica Fletcher Again, which fictional character lives at 508 St. Cloud Road? A. Bruce Wayne, B. The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, or C. Jessica Fletcher? And just to appease me, we have the shape of countries and flags getting. Mm. Right, so, top left, which country is this? Now, obviously, most people will be tuning into the podcast and not the zoom version of this mm. so I, have to keep, I have to do this a little bit descriptive uh, the flag is a is a um, horizontal it has um, a red stripe a white stripe and followed by a red stripe this country has a long storied history in europe though it's much reduced in size and actually we've talked about one of its rulers earlier on in the quiz that's number one, top left. Uh, top right, we have a country which has a rather more tragic history and again um, is mentioned in Deirdre Mars' book in terms of health control. It has, a, it has a very proud history and one of the things it is accomplished in the world 
but now is somewhat seen as down on its luck. What country is that? That is top right. And its flag um, is blue and red with a coat of arms. Bottom left. The original rainbow nation is conceived by um, its uh, when it had its regime change. Uh, this country is the most powerful in its continent in terms of GDP and military and has somewhat of a rainbow flag. I think there's enough clues there. And then bottom right, the largest democracy in the world. There you go. That's a mm -hmm. massive clue. There you go. There's a massive clue. So there you go, folks. That is the Map Corner quiz. And now we are going to go on to um, our audio postcard. A second visit to Berlin, some 14 years after my original one, and the city is unrecognisable. Back in 2006, there was a definite difference between East and West. The East was cooler more down at heel but you could very clearly define walking from where the wall used to be that used to divide the city prosperity is everywhere berlin is a city of neighborhoods without a real center yes there's a center of sorts you can go to the brandenburg gate and you can see the british american and french embassies in the middle of town which kind of makes no sense in a regular city but berlin is anything but regular as a functioning city, Berlin is quite vast, but relatively low on density. Its roads are long and wide. This is cost of central planning and the fact that 90% of the buildings in Berlin were destroyed during the Second World War. 90%. After the war, urban planners could quite literally start again. There aren't any particularly tall buildings in the central Berlin. The centre of the city is odd in that it doesn't really contain a thriving, bustling shopping district which sits cheek by jowl with its central business district full of chrome and glass towers. Though Berlin is the capital, but also you can feel the decentralisation of the old German state. The financial heart of Germany is of course Frankfurt. Some government agencies are still actually left in Bonn and the lander or the German states have high levels of devolution. It's hard to spot, at least in the centre of Berlin, the old Berlin. The Russians put pay to that. There are some small fragments of old buildings. The old Kaiser's Palace, though flattened, does have the fascia of the old building to one side. And there is Museum Island, which miraculously survived the Red Army's assault. Finding traces of the former wall between East and West can be found with an expert eye. Take Checkpoint Charlie, for instance. On the American side, there is more commercial activity than there is to the ex-Soviet side. But these are nuanced differences. You can go to the East Side Gallery, which runs along the River Spree, and there is still some of the wall there. But as the name alludes to for this area of Berlin, it is now a gallery with the famous picture of Honecker kissing Brezhnev as probably its most famous bit of street art. It's very easy to say that in the reunification of Germany and specifically Berlin that the West won, but the East won in a very small but important way. When the wall came down, one of the things that divided Berlin were the symbols on its traffic lights. In the West, the symbol displayed was of a fairly standard utilitarian symbol. East Berlin had a much quirkier and homely figure, rather chubby man wearing a hat, gaily striding across the road. After the wall came down, the government of the city started to replace the East German traffic lights with the more standard West icon. This prompted an outcry. And to this day, if you go to the east of the city, you'll see all the traffic lights display the ex-communist symbol. However, you can go to many places in the west now, and the east has had its revenge. Not only are traffic lights now being replaced in the western city with this familiar icon from eastern Germany, but 
he has now become the de facto icon adorning tourist bags, mugs and paraphernalia. He has now become the symbol of Berlin, friendly and quirky. A layer of separation that the whole city, west or east, has embraced. <laughs> Love there you go. Wow. So that was that was my me, me little trip to Berlin, and um, I, absolutely was it. Absolutely was, which is one of the reasons why I was utterly fascinated, uh, Deirdre, with um, you know renaming streets because Berlin has gone through well Germany, but specifically Berlin has gone through such a traumatic time yes. in the twentieth century with renaming yes. its streets. Yes, absolutely. You know, it's absolutely reflected in the street names and the way people think about them there. Now, it, it's that time, folks, when I say to our assembled guests who are on the Zoom call with us, and I know you're listening on a podcast, 99.9% of you are listening to the audio version <laughs> of this, but this is a reason to join our Facebook group so you can actually get the Zoom links and actually know um, how to jump on these calls. But we've got Kenneth, we've got Andy, we've got Nick, and we have Fiona and Jennifer with us. So this is your time, people. If you've got a question to Deirdre, please um, unmute yourself and, and fire, fire off your question. And, and first off, M Mr. Ken McDonald, right? I know you, you haven't exactly unmuted your microphone, but I'm gonna throw a question at you. Why did you suggest to our Claire that she, she should actually reach out to Deirdre? Well, first I read the review of the book in the New York Times. You were very well-reviewed, and that inspired me to, uh, to download the book to my Kindle. And it really was a, a page-turner, which you <laughs> well, really expect. And it's all very topical uh, now with uh, some of the issues being addressed, mm -hmm. such as the tracing of, of uh, past plagues using addresses or uh, some of the issues say when you were in South Africa talking about the renaming of, of places uh, as a result of uh, the, the changes there and we're, we're going through that here too uh, in America now. Of course. It just struck me as very much in our wheelhouse you know it, it takes a, a topic that that sounds very obscure and makes it extremely relevant. Thank you very much. I never thought I'd write a page-turning book about street addresses. So that's a that's <laughs> high flattery. Thank you very much. I, I did want to ask you about something that, that you haven't touched upon, really, which is places where perhaps street addresses are not uh, a workable solution. Yeah. Uh, we were in, uh, I, I can't remember the... I still call it Calcutta. I can't remember. Uh, yeah, they say Kolkata, but I think even people who live there sometimes. Where perhaps uh, if there are streets in, in some of these parts of town, they're ephemeral and, and yeah. a lot of churches are as well. The use of these alternative GPS-based solutions, yeah. what three words or um, yeah. the one Google has. Google plus codes, yeah. Why don't people just go with longitude and latitude <laughs> yeah well you know I, I focus in the book it's a great question on these what three words in google plus codes just because those have become the most prominent alternative addressing solutions but obviously there's longitude and latitude and there are people who, who complain about some of the newer things for not just using this all of these issues with these new street addresses is, is as i said before will people actually use them so i was actually really surprised like when i was following the team around doing the addressing in kolkata how many people did have cell phones it, you know seemed like the very poorest in the slums a lot of them still had a cell phone number they could give you so it does seem like there should be some alternative approach that uses something that you can look up in a phone Google's, I know, is doing a lot of work in India, and maybe the other groups are as well. But for some reason, they haven't just taken off. And, and maybe it's part of that fact that we have these personal associations now with street names and numbers that we start to remember them and use them and become meaningful, whereas these strings of numbers or strings of words perhaps don't really stick quite the same way. Or maybe people don't like looking it up or they're just used to the old ways. I don't know. That's a great question. I just don't know why they aren't... Um, are more frequently used. But I think they will probably become more frequently used as even more people get not just cell phones, but smartphones. And yeah. You did express some skepticism, though. Yeah. What three words and so on. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think they're great. I mean, I think they're amazing that they're tackling this issue. My issue with place things especially like what three words is that's all bound up in patents and it's not open data and so you know in order to find out your address or your neighbor's address you have to go to the app which is free 
you know, they, they're not just open data that you can use, which is, I think, you know, just a problem. And I think a, a people I spoke to who are in this world say this is a big problem um, because you, you, sh you need to have some system where you aren't necessarily mediating where you are through a company or where you can, you know, log things more easily. So, it, it, so I think that that is my skepticism over these private companies who are doing this. Now, Google Plus codes actually are open data as, you know, as far as I can tell. So that's promising. Um, but yeah, you do worry when, you know, I think every, so many of the public spaces, places that you see public spaces are now being co-opted by private companies. You know, maybe you used to talk on a street corner and now you talk on Facebook or on Twitter. And I, I, I do worry a bit that this is yet another public domain, another public good that's going to become privatized. And there are pros and cons to it, but that would be my worry about it. While still thinking what they do is really cool, you know, and, and, and valuable, but I'm skeptical that it's also a, a profit-making venture. Deidre, give us some really evocative street names. I grew up on a road called King Standing Road in Birmingham. Yeah. And uh, the one of the lovely things about King Standing Road was, I think, it was on the very cusp of, apart from just being a word, a name, but you still mm. understood its meaning. Yes. And it was named thus because King Charles I stood on a hill to watch the Battle of Aston. Hence, King Standing. Huh. Wow. And, and we were always told that living on the road, you know, King Charles yeah. in 1643, whatever, stood on this hill to watch Battle of Aston. So give us some really kind of evocative uh, oh kind of like street names, you know, which, you, you I know, tend which... to think of the rude, you have, you have a much grander one. I think it's because my chapter on the UK is all on rude street names that I think of the rude ones like Crotch Crescent or something like that, that or, <laughs> or Butthole Road, you know, you say things like this. You know, so I tend to think of those. Areas. That sounds rather American to me, Butthole Road. Well, it's interesting. It's interesting you say that because Americans in particular laugh at this because mm -hmm. because for people who are listening to in North America, they don't really use the word butt here in quite the same way. But, you know, it's a very childish word in America. So, so the... The theory for Butthole Road is that it was actually named after a water butt, you know, something that collects water. So I think it's actually not as funny to people in the UK as it is to America. It would be very sort of Bart Simpson. Um, so I tend to think of the rude ones. So I think a lot of the names exactly, as you say, are the ones that have some sort of meaning to us or have some sort of historical meaning. So, you know, I write about this in my book as well, but I'm recording right now from Wilberforce Road, which is where I live. And I love it. You know, I love it not just by like this has a nice sound to it, I think, but also because, you know, this was the champion of uh, abolition, abolishing yeah. the slave trade. You mm -hmm. know, it's a meaningful name. I mean, people like it. People tell me that even without knowing anything about my street names, people say, oh, Wilberforce. Oh, that's you know, and then it's funny. I get to say oh, I've actually written. I've actually written a book about it, which includes it as a street name. So I do think uh, that there is some power in having some commemorative names that you, that you like. Or, but then again, I have lots of names from my childhood that don't have any commemoration. Are quite boring, but you know, I love them because I, you know, because our sense of place and memory. I write about this in the book as well. Are so interconnected. So you know, so when you lived on, uh, I lived on a street called East Rosemary Street you know, where I'm from in Chapel Hill and East Rosemary. I might have no, you know, what Rosemary East, whatever. Oh, but I, I hear it. You know, you just get the feeling of what it was like to ride your bike down East Rosemary Street because we have these you, memories. You, you mentioned so, in your book that you had, uh, when you were looking for a home in London, that yes. part of the reason, at least, that you decided not to select that house was because yes. of the street name. Exactly. Yeah. So when we first moved to London, so I moved to London with my husband from Ireland, um, we were looking for homes and we were renting in a part of London that was sort of on the border of Stamford Hill and Tottenham for people who know, who know London and North London. And so we were looking in that area and we had friends who lived in the area near the school that they, they raved about, actually American friends. And it's actually in the most diverse postcode in the UK, and people suspect it's actually the most diverse postcode in Europe, this area called Tottenham. But it's, there was a house that came up for sale, which was impressive to us because we didn't think we could afford a house, a two-bedroom house, on a street called Black Boy Lane. And I went to go see it. And this is actually before I was writing this book, which is obviously I have a long-standing interest in names and street names at that point. And I went and I saw the house and it was great and it was moving quickly. And a couple were divorcing or something. And so they had this house and a fireplace in every room and we could afford it. And there were lots of reasons why I didn't do it. But I kept saying, to, yeah, I said, Asia, this is just strange, like Black Boy Lane. And, you know, I'm from an American. I'm, I should preface people who are listening. I'm African-American. I'm Black. You know, so, you know, so I had this weird feeling about it. And also in America, you know, the word boy connected to, you know, um, you know, it was a name that even racists would call a, an elderly black man as a way of denigrating. But, you know, we, I talked to some of the neighbors who were walking, you know, walking across that house. And a lot of them thought it was just a bit funny. It was a conversation starter. And, you know, and then, then I actually went home and read about it. Some people say that's not even named after black people at all, that it's named after 
uh, King Charles, who apparently had very dark skin, you know, so that it was not, it was called Black Boy because he was called the Black King or so. Who knows? I don't know. Nobody will ever know. But I felt really uncomfortable about it. And uh, I, you know, who say if that is that the only reason we didn't go for the house? We actually waited a couple of years and ended up buying the flat on Wilberforce Road. But when I got the flat on Wilberforce Road, I saw, I just thought, yes, this makes sense to me. This feels much more like home than Black Boy Lane ever could. I, I don't want a street name I have to explain away. Andy Gladwin, welcome to Map Corner, sir. Where do you live, sir, and do you have a question? Um, well, I, I live in uh, Dog Cross, which is in Saddleworth, which is nestled just west side of the Pennines, just above Manchester, mm-hmm. in uh, the South Pennines, uh, pretty much bang on two degrees west. So I'm, uh, it's, it's literally a couple of miles to the east of here. But I'm originally from Hull, actually, so where William Wilberforce was uh, our MP. Yes. Back in, back in the day. So he's a, a local hero. Yes, absolutely. And I, no, I don't have a question for you, but um, yeah. I, I listened to the first podcast that you did um, via Zoom uh, only this morning, actually. I thought, wow, that's a tremendous fun. So I've got to join. Oh, so, great. Uh, I'm so glad you did. Uh, yeah, well, 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 welcome. And uh, you live in a very interesting city because everybody gets the name of your city wrong. It's not actually Hull, it's Kingston upon Hull, Kingston isn't it? Kingston upon Hull. Is yeah. it? I yeah, never knew that. Yeah, which is uh, all back to the English Civil War and the, mm. um, you know, they, they were all played in the English Civil War. Although it was a parliamentary town, it's very staunchly parliamentary, whereas to the north of Hull is Beverly, which was a royalist town. So, um, but that whole period of history is fascinating because they, some of the key players switched sides during the war and it was, mm. you know, mm. it's, uh, it's a whole... The whole podcast in itself, probably right. one for uh, yeah. one for David on the history of in- England when he gets around to that. Yeah, yeah. Hull is so interesting because it is so associated with Wilberforce, and a lot of a lot of my reading recently about street names in the UK is focused on places like Bristol, which has had you know you know the connections with Colston into the slave trade. Mm-hmm. So it's been interesting how cities also become defined in this way by the by the by the people they've chosen to commemorate. Yeah, I mean Hull's not unique, but obviously a lot of the, the, the street names mm. it's all to do with the you know the history of the city. Mm-hmm. So that there are you know streets named after Wilberforce. There is um streets named after some Victorian industrialists, um mm. Jim mm. Ferrins and Reckitts and um, um but then also with um it's trip to with Freetown in um Sierra Leone again because yeah. of the Wilberforce connections right. to the Freetown Way, yeah. and um, also because of the, the fishing industry as well. Yeah. So there's you know sort of like um, uh, you'll find streets named after you know sort of Greenland Crescent and places like that because of the you know the whaling and then the, uh, the deep sea um, Arctic fishing which took place from Holborn Spot Town. Totally fascinating. There's lots of uh, Jamaica Rose in the United Kingdom uh, because of that kind of uh, historical imperial uh, connection. And actually, in my hometown of Birmingham, Claire, have I told you I'm from Birmingham before? Just occasionally. No, just once or twice. (laughs) So um, Jamaica Row uh, was redeveloped and uh, knocked down in the 1960s. And it's with much fanfare and celebration that Jamaica Row will be recut with a redevelopment of of Birmingham in in the next two years. One last question, and I'm calling upon one of our favourite listeners, Fiona Powell, who she... she, Yes, exactly, Fiona. Like, what, what, what? You were doing lots of nodding. Whilst Andy uh, Gladwin was talking, you were nodding along sagely. What were you, why, why were you so knowing about Hull, Fiona? Mm. I was largely brought up in, in the South in, uh, and Welsh, and I was largely lived in Somerset and was schooled in Kent. And I lived in small villages um, where we didn't have street names. We just had house names, no streets at all in any of the villages I lived in. The reason I nodded madly was I'm a, a massive fan of, of William Wilberforce. Mm-hmm. Uh, my daughter, I used to go on, on holiday to Yorkshire and my daughter, Ella, fell in love with Yorkshire. Mm-hmm. She married a Yorkshireman, so I got to know Hull very, very well. And uh, Beverly is my second favorite town in the entire world. My first favorite is Ludlow in Shropshire. Ah. So ni- neither Welsh nor nor Somerset. So that's why I nodded. I love Hull. I love its history. I love Beverly. I love mm. its history. So that's why I was nodding. I've never been. That's bad. That's my list. Hull it's- has a tradition of having its own sort of way of doing things. It has its own telephone company, its own water yeah. company. 
it had its own way. I wonder whether it's that translated into any of its street naming conventions and whether it does any of that differently from the rest of the country as well. Oh, I'm not sure about that. I mean, it certainly had its own telephone company, instant communications, and they're cream, cream telephone boxes where each thing, there's still a few of them around. Um, I'm not sure if that going to the, the street naming convention. But just back on the Wilberforce thing, I mean, geography is you know, hugely important to this because Hull being on the east side, it wasn't, you know, the slave trade wasn't as important to it. Yes. Whereas the western cities in, in England, sort of Bristol and Liverpool, and, yes. and working for quite a long time in Liverpool, you know, you see it in street names there still with mm-hmm. Gorey Street and, mm-hmm. you know, Gambia Street and things mm-hmm. like that. Whereas you don't have that connection with Liverpool. And, and certainly Wayne Wilberforce was trying to get, you know, a number of times it took him to get his acts through Parliament. And a lot of the opposition was coming from Liverpool-based MPs because mm. obviously the slave trade and you know, the cotton coming into the west of the country and everything associated with that was hugely important to these individuals because that's how they, you know, they made their fortunes. So people like Bamba Gascoigne and was a Liverpool MP, and Benesco Tarleton, you know, absolutely, um, you know, some huge opponents of Wilberforce. And that's partly about where they were based. And mm-hmm. yeah, so you get these West west of the country MPs very much for the slave trade. And then Wilberforce coming from Hull, um, you know, didn't have the same vested interests. And um, geography is hugely important in um, the history of places. And that translates obviously through into some of the street names as well. Yeah, Absolutely. You know what we're going to have to do? We're going to have to do a show or, or three, Claire, around the slave trade and how it's affected geography, you know, mm. says the black Englishman. I wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for the slave trade. There you go. After saying that, I'm in Canada right now. But you get my meaning. <laughs> right. Fiona, go on. So, uh, just an observation. Um, having spent most of my life south of Bristol and knowing Cardiff very well, the other side of that coin is when the slave trade was over, integration in Bristol and in Cardiff was massive. Mm. And and one of the big surprises that happened when I came to America was when I was talking about Shirley Bassey and what a proud Welsh woman she was. And people would say, but she's black. How can mm. she be Welsh? Mm-hmm. That's an interesting conversation. Mm. Mm. Yeah. We're definitely going to have to do a show about this, uh, Claire Asprey, um, how on the macro and the micro level, the slave trade has affected geography, where it's movements of population, renaming places, etc., etc. But what we do have to do is give you the, the quiz answers because we're running out of time. Yes. He says, so, because I know you, Deirdre, you're, you're on tenterhooks, aren't you? You're like, let me help. How... I contribute. I would like to hear the answers myself. Question number one. According to a Frank Knight report in 2020, what was the most expensive street in the world? It was A, 57th Street in New York. Question number two. In 1844, how many deliveries a day did the Royal Mail offer in London? I knew this. It was seven. Uh, Question number three. Which 18th century European ruler sent out an army to number houses? It was Mary Theresa of Bohemia, Queen of Hungary. She wasn't the Empress of the Holy Roman Empire because she was a woman. So she had all these other titles instead. Question number four. Which building has the postal address of P.O. Box 995, Kentucky, USA. It is Fort Knox. Question number five. This was a surprise. What is the most common street name in the USA? It's Second Street. So are they renaming First Streets and giving them names? Yeah, no, it's a, and this is according to census data. Some people quibble with this, but it's only a quibble because it's one of the most popular street names in America. It's because a lot of First Streets became Main Streets. So, you know, I think if you probably combine First Street and Main Street, that would be the most popular. But then you'd have Main Street and then Second Street. Good heavens. Yeah. Good job we had you on the show. (laughs) Clear that up for us. (laughs) Question number seven. Which fictional character lives at 508 St. Cloud Road? It is B, the Fresh Prince of (laughs) Bel-Air. Right. Map, corner, quiz, tights, shape of countries and flags, my two favorite things. Top left is Austria top right is haiti bottom left is south africa and i think claire we've had south africa before in one of these because i remember but i know it was in i know you did a lot of work on south africa dear dreamy but it's a reason Mm -hmm. why it's Mm -hmm. been included and then bottom right 
largest democracy in the world is of course India so there are all of the answers to the quiz so Nick Nick Roweth how many did you get this week Nick I got eight <laughs> wow eight can anybody beat eight Ken how about well, you sir I, I missed whatever the total is minus two because I only missed two Oh, I think there's eleven. Was there seven questions in four countries? So yes. Yeah, counting each country is one. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Nine. Oh, nine. Do we have any advancement on nine? Oh, Andy. 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 I, I've got ten. I got the first one wrong. That was it. So you started badly but ended strong. I, I picked it up. Yeah. yeah. Well <laughs> done, <laughs> sir. Thankfully, I didn't know I got it wrong. Otherwise, I would have been all all over the place. <laughs> Well, you know what you get for your prize. And, oh, just before we come on to your prize, uh, Miss Deirdre Mask. I did pretty well. I didn't commit to some of the answers, so it's hard for me to the tally. I also would have gotten the first one wrong. I would have guessed Hong Kong, I think. But yeah. um, interesting to note, 57 Street, which I believe appears in my book. is Okay, but how may, uh, what's your score? What are you going to allocate yourself? This oh, one? gosh, I don't know. I think A yeah. solid eight, seven? I think a solid eight sounds about right. I'll go I with saw, that. Okay, some of them I just didn't commit because... You know, I'm All right. Back on it, but, so, uh, yeah. Andy Gladwin, <laughs> Jennifer, uh, you've been rather quiet this whole this whole episode, Jennifer. Um, do you want to commit to a score? No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> I think Jennifer and I will tie together in that in that bond. I think I got five or six. I knew all the countries but one, and I got the first question wrong, the second question wrong, and then I got all the others right. Okay. So five, five six, something like that. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> For having such a cute icon, I'm going to give you an extra point. You got seven. There you go. There you go. Uh, Andy Gladwin, you won. Do you know what you get for winning, Andy? I have no idea. You get the honour. No, you you get something. You get the honour of doing next month's audio postcard. Uh, All right. Okay. (laughs) So homework. (laughs) It can be of anywhere. Doesn't have to be your hometown. Just talk about somewhere where you've been, and then. I'll put the images to it, and it'll be on uh, next month's episode. All right, let me give it. Hull sounds like a great choice, actually. Yeah. Just, just on the audio postcard, uh, mm-hmm. with you doing Berlin? I was actually in Berlin the week the wall came down. Stop oh. it! I was, I was training as an accountant. Wait a minute, were you working for the Stasi? Fordle and I was a training chart accountant, and I just couldn't face going into the office with history happening in. Berlin, so I had my boss and he was all for sending me out there. So I got flights and I was out there that week. So it was, um, wasn't there when it came down, but the week afterwards, that that was memorable. I went back two years ago for the first time. So with you saying how it's Mm. utterly changed since the early 2000s, Mm. it completely changed since uh, 89. It really was. I can imagine. I can imagine. There's the Museum of East Germany by the River Spree go there it was utterly brilliant i'm not actually one for museums there's a real history bore that i am generally i find museums actually kind of quite quite boring it was utterly brilliant and what they do there they have lots of east german artifacts but then physically rooms so you'll go into a room and it'll be an east german living room and then on the tv will be east german tv and one of the wonderful things that i learned going to the, the Museum of East Germany was that there's this real tradition since the 1920s of nudism in Germany. Hmm. And it predates the Nazis. And it was seen as a way of showing your vitality and your health. It was not at all sexual. Not at all sexual. Hmm. And it's something which started in the 1920s and then gathered speed in the, in the Nazi era. When the communists came along, they didn't really like it. But it was one way that East Germans could show their dissent against the the communist regime was by taking their clothes off. And there's a news report on this, and it showed you on, on in the room, and uh, they had English subtitles. They said that 97% of East Germans were nudists, and it was quite dissent against the, against the regime. So you had this news report which is the news at let's say six o'clock in east germany and this reporter is just walking up to this very regular east german holiday camp and everyone is naked grandma's naked little kids are naked everyone is naked and of course angela merkel there's lots of pictures of her 
Nick, if you want to Google this and whatever, uh, naked because it was just a thing that everybody wow. did in East Germany. It wasn't at all sexual. It wasn't just whole families naked. And this reporter is going from naked person to naked person and whatever. But the Museum of East Germany, go this. Utterly brilliant. It's worth the money. Worth the money, Andy. Right. On that note, right, because we're over time, uh, Deirdre Mask, you've been too entertaining. Oh, right? no. Thank you so much for inviting me. And thanks, Ken, for thinking of me. Kenneth, for thinking of me. Claire, we need to do social media roundup and then we can fold away our maps. Indeed. So um, just a few highlights from the uh, social media this uh, month. We had a really beautiful uh, map sent on the hashtag map corner on Twitter from Aura Funny Pants, which is uh, at magic underscore at underscore mungos who uh, sent a picture which was a fabric map of Africa and India. You know me, I am absolutely a sucker for a haberdashery or mm. um, needlework map of any kind. Uh, and this was uh, around traditional fabric patterns from different parts of India and different parts of Africa. And it's, a, it's a, just a thing of beauty. Um, definitely want to, to look out on the uh, map corner hashtag. In the Facebook group, uh, one of the things that's been most popular in the last sort of months has been uh, that people map of the UK where you can zoom in and see who the most Wikipedia person is in any location. Mm. I don't know who is the whole one. I mean, I'm, I hope that it would be Wilberforce, but I'll say that. <laughs> um, you know, I'm from Bedford and uh, we could have had John Bunyan, we could have had Paula Radcliffe, but we actually had Carol Vorderman. So um, <laughs> don't get your hopes up, folks. Um, and Carol Vorderman only lived in Bedford for about a week and then she moved to Wales as a baby. So uh, it's certainly, uh, you, you might be in for disappointment when you look your, when you look the location up on that one. <laughs> Another one that I thought was really beautiful was um, Sheila Brink-Keithley Keith um, had posted something about how she's got old maps and then she looks up on uh, Google Earth and she can see the current patterns on the land of the things that she's seen in the old maps. If you've got a, a number of old maps on your hands and you want to see what the world looks like now, that's, a, that's an interesting way to pass some time, especially uh, if, you're, if you've got a bit of a you know nothing much going on during lockdown i think that's uh, that's a really interesting way of seeing how the past still lives with us so yeah i thought that was, that was a really nice thing that she shared and then one of the most popular maps was around the one posted by michelle georgiani which was uh, maps which have been made up of what's a word cloud i suppose or, or the kind of names of the places that compose them so mm. Um, uh, state maps and country maps based on the names of the places within them, which are beautiful pieces of art in themselves. It's not a map per se, but it's in the shape of the place and it encodes all the names of the places in it. So uh, does that still count as a map? I don't know. Um, it's, it, it's a map. It's a map, Claire. It's, 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 <laughs> it's notably something <laughs> geographic, so it'll, yeah. it, it counts for us. So there are some of those kind of highlights from, from this month. And, uh, you know, we, we have a growing uh, Facebook community. People are sharing interesting kind of maps and charts, uh, you know, all the time. And there's some really interesting chats on there. So uh, do encourage uh, Map Corner listeners to come and join. And do we have a map fact of the month? We do. Um, Get in. I know. And it, it, it's sort of come to some of the conversations we've had this week uh, about uh, we've had a lot of time talking about sort of areas of eastern europe really and so my map fact which i discovered today which was none of the countries which surrounded poland in 1990 exist now so wow. in 1990 poland was bordered by east germany czechoslovakia and the ussr and now it's bordered by Germany, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, the Ukraine, Belarus, Lithuania, and Russia. That is a great map fact. Wow. There you go. That's breathtaking. You've got a lot more neighbours to deal with, that's for sure. If you're Poland, <laughs> you know, you've gone from having three neighbours to seven. Goodness. I'm going to dine out on that one. That's a good one, Claire. That, no, no, that done, absolutely taken my breath away. Because well, how is that possible? But it was—it's the—it's the, it's the che it's Czechoslovakia dissolving. That's what threw me. Well done, well done, well done. And Poland is one of those fascinating countries. And you see the map of Poland. It was the, the Commonwealth of Poland and Lithuania back in the day, and with Poland being relatively small and Lithuania 
been massive, much bigger than uh, modern-day Lithuania, which had modern-day Lithuania, Belarus, and half of the Ukraine. And it was a humongous country in the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, and then gets divided by Prussia, Austria, and Russia repeatedly until it becomes a nothing. And it's, it's got to be one of those countries where if you look at the shape of it through history, it has moved west, east, north, south. But Poland physically moves around and it's had so many different borders. It's utterly fascinating. But maybe we'll do a podcast about the moving boundaries of Poland one day, Claire. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think somewhere if you Google it, you can probably find an animation of the the, the, the way that Poland has changed shape over time. And, yeah. and that is always a really dynamic picture. Well, that's what I'm going to do, because I'm, I'm in isolation here in, in Ontario. I can't, I can't leave here for, for another 11 days. You know, these Canadians are like, come into our country, could be bringing the coronas with you. You lock down, mister. I can't even leave the front door. It's, it's that, that on, on top here. So trying to find that map give me hours of entertainment, Claire. So thank you. I'll while away my time. Folks, I think you've been right royally entertained. This has been a blockbusting, barnstorming episode of Map Corner. Deidre Mask, again, one last time, I'm going to thank you for coming on. We salute you. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And uh, Claire Asprey, I think we can now officially and utterly fold away our maps, can't we? Yeah, I'm just going to remind people that uh, November's uh, Zoom will be on the, um, oh gosh, I want to say the of November, I haven't updated it. Um, but next month, Royfield is, is going to be in Royfield Heaven because our guest is going to be Ted Kay from the North American Vexillogical Association and the author of Good Flag, Bad Flag, The Man Who Knows His Flags. I think he may actually have met his match because if there's a man who knows his flags, it's Royfield. <laughs> um, lots of flag chat next month. So yeah, please, uh, please come and join us then at the first Saturday of November. And uh, don't forget, folks, uh, if you've got nothing else better to do with your day, why don't you go and write us a a five-star tip-top review on a podcatcher of your choice. Andy, Andy Galvin, uh, Galvin, sorry, that is something which you need to do. Jennifer, I don't think you've written a review for us so far. You can do that also. But uh, we'll see you all again, folks, in approximately 30 days for another Map Corner. So, Claire, shall we utterly, completely fold away our maps now? Let's fold away our map. <laughs> thanks, everyone. Great, thanks.